Well, it's good to be with you this morning, and it's a privilege always to preach God's Word, so uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing with you this morning. And um, just to, to kind of set the context of what I'd like to say this morning, we're kind of coming back to our Mark series, uh, which is a portrait of Jesus. And remember that we have been studying Mark to kind of understand uh, who Jesus is. And that's one of the great themes of Mark is, is this question is asked all through the gospel, who is Jesus? And uh, the disciples take time to, to understand who Jesus is. And so it's one of the main reasons that Mark writes his gospel is to help us understand just who Jesus is. And um, we're about to land now in chapter 14, uh, and we're going to look at the last week of Jesus' life. But um, just remember, uh, the last six weeks, we've been looking at uh, our vision, and um, I just wanted to re recap on that a little. But um, we, we looked at our, our vision statement, rooted in Christ, planted in family, fruitful in life. And the first two weeks, we're just kind of looking again at the power of, of what it means to believe by faith and what that does for us in our lives, and that actually... There's an amazing freedom that Christ has bought for us that we enjoy and that we don't have to live by a moral code or by rules and regulations. But to please Jesus, all we have to do is hear the voice of the Spirit in our lives and obey Him. And that's what pleases Him more than anything else, that we learn to walk by the Spirit. So the first two weeks we had a look at that. The second two weeks we had a look at the church and what it means to be planted in a family. Why does, why does the Bible use the word church to describe the family of God? And we had a look at that and, and what it means to be planted in this church in particular. And I hope that encouraged you. And then last week, uh, the final two weeks, we looked at Fruitful in Life. And Helen looked at leaving a legacy, what that means for us to pass on this amazing gospel that has transformed our lives to others and what that looks like. And then last week, Clive focused us even further outward in terms of what God has called us to do as a church. And we looked at our mission and our sense of calling here in this local community in Europe and to the ends of the earth. And I really trust that you were encouraged when you saw just how much God has called us to do and, and what we are doing as a church to try and be a blessing in our local community and also in Europe and the rest of the world. And so that brings me back again today now to um, continue and start to look at the cross. Um, this, first, this week has also been the first week of Lent uh, many traditional churches uh, celebrate Lent, which starts on Ash Wednesday, which was uh, this week on Wednesday, which is an anticipation of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert and this uh, sense of trying to identify with what Jesus went through in the desert. And so this kind of pr practice of Lent was first started in the early centuries of the church and by 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, a kind of formalized Lent as, a, as a, a, a practice. And really, we think it was because um, new Christians were wanting to be baptized. And so there was this process of preparing people for baptism over Easter. And so there was an emphasis on repentance. And therefore, Ash Wednesday was putting the ash uh, on your forehead as a sign of repentance. And um, Shrove Tuesday, which you enjoy as Pancake Day, uh, yeah, that was to symbolize the using up the last things in your larder, the last fat, the last oil, the last flour, before uh, you started this 40-day Lenten fast, anticipating Easter and, the, and Good Friday and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that really is 
is the history of, of why various Christians practice Lent. Um, and so for me, it's, uh, it's also wonderful this year that our, our study of Mark has coincided uh, with, with Lent in a very natural way. And so, like I said, we are looking at the last, the last 48 hours of Jesus' life now. And so over the next weeks as we run up to Easter, we're going to be looking at a different um, aspect of each of those 48 hours and, and once again reflecting on what happened in Jesus' life. And so we begin today with the last Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life, which he spends at a place called Bethany which is not far from Jerusalem. And so if you have your Bibles or you are watching at home and you'd like to read with me, um, we're going to go to Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses, which says this, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time that you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to portray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. It's a really, really powerful um, portion of Scripture, and in particular, Mary's response is, is one that truly has been uh, preached all over the world as an acknowledgement of her absolute love and devotion to Jesus. And um, this morning, I want to share three very simple thoughts with you out of the Scripture, and I trust they will encourage you, and um, I've had a look this week at various commentaries, and um, uh, they all say similar things. But uh, these are three very basic thoughts that I'd like to share with you. And they all have to do with three views of the cross um, and what responses those can help us with in our lives. First of all, I'd, I'd like to look at how God viewed the, viewed the cross. Uh, secondly, obviously, how Mary, the, the woman in the story, viewed the cross. And thirdly, how Judas, who ultimately betrayed Jesus, how he viewed the cross. So let's begin with the first then, how God viewed the cross. And here we see that from God's perspective, the death of Jesus was a Passover sacrifice. 
And um, I'm going to link it in, obviously, to Genesis, to the story of the Passover there. But in the first two verses, in verse 2 in our text this morning, we see that the chief priests, the teachers of the law, were scheming to kill Jesus, but they didn't want to do it over the Passover festival. Uh, in fact, they say the, the words are, but not during the Passover, they said, or the people might riot. Um, so they're aware, even in their scheming, they, wanted, they, they want to get things done quickly, before the Passover festival, but we see in the story that it, God, it was God's plan that Jesus actually should fulfill the pattern of Passover. And remember the original story in, in Exodus chapter 12, Passover was the occasion where the people were going to be judged and the angel of death was going to be passing over and the firstborn of each family would die. And that's the story that we read in Genesis. But God says to the Israelites that they were to take a lamb and to slaughter the lamb, and that would stay the sentence of execution over their families, and they were to paint the doorposts with the blood of the lamb, and as they took shelter, every house that had blood on the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over, and their uh, firstborn would not die. And from that point on, they would be called Israel or God's chosen nation. And so we see here that it really was in God's plan that Jesus should be a Passover lamb for all of us, every single one of us that believes by faith. He was a substitute. He was a sacrificial substitute. He too was dying for the sins of all God's people, and salvation ultimately would come to every single person that trusts in his blood by faith. And it's always fascinating when I reflect on the story that the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were rushing. They were doing all that they could to get rid of Jesus quickly and trying to, to make that all happen before the Passover began. And even with all their scheming, even with all of their planning, um, the plans were delayed through the sovereign hand of God. Pilate took much longer than they were anticipating to make the decision that they were expecting that Jesus would be crucified. And so ultimately, in the story, at the very time that the Jews were sacrificing the lambs as the, for the traditional Passover sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus, was dying for the sins of the world. It's absolutely incredible. And from God's perspective, that's how he viewed the cross. That's how he saw his son paying the price as the lamb for all of us, just as the lamb was being sacrificed by Jews to celebrate the Passover. That's the first little view of the cross that I'd like to share with you this morning. Secondly, we see Mary in the story, how she viewed the cross, and ultimately what that elicited from her heart was an amazing uh, outpouring of love, devotion, and worship. We see that from verse 3 to verse 9. Now, what I find really interesting about this is that Jesus had made clear predictions throughout the Gospel of Mark, if you, if you reflect on our study, that he had said a number of times that he was going to die. And he was anticipating his own death. He was relentlessly moving towards the cross to embrace the cross as he knew his father had planned for him. But his disciples didn't really get it. 
And they hadn't taken these things seriously at all. Uh, they seemed to think that Jesus was just a little melancholy or feeling depressed or overreacting. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but Peter even said to Jesus, this will not happen to you, Lord, this thing that you're saying, that you're going to die. This is not going to happen to you, Lord. Just don't think like that. And yet we see here in the story that there was really one person that really did take Jesus at his word and believed what he said. And we find this person at the home of Simon, who was a leper that had been healed by Jesus. And this woman comes and she pours out this expensive perfume, a large quantity of pure nard, over Jesus. And we know from John's Gospel in John chapter 12 that this woman is identified as Mary of Bethany. And she takes criticism in the story for being so extravagant, for being so lavish, that she spent a whole year's wages on pouring out this perfume upon Jesus. But the reaction of Jesus is so amazing. He says, leave her. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing. And there are really a couple of things that this story tells us, tells us about Jesus. And I've kind of mentioned them already. First of all, she really took Jesus at his word and believed that he was going to die. She believed in his coming death. In fact, Jesus points to that in verse 8. And he says, what she has done is not only an act of worship. She actually is preparing my body for burial. That's what she's actually done. She's anointed my body for burial. She's understood what I've come to do, that I've come to die for her. In some way, she's understood that, and she's come and she's prepared my body for burial. It's an incredible thought. I don't, I don't know if you've, um, I was thinking about this week. I mean, at that very moment when Jesus was saying that, he was thinking that in two days' time, he was going to be dead and buried. Uh, and I, I've never, I was just thinking, what an, what an incredible uh, thought to contemplate of your own life. Uh, that if I knew that in two days' time I would be dead and buried, uh, how, how would I react? Can you imagine thinking about that of yourself? In two days you would be dead and buried. So G here we see Mary, the only person that's taken Jesus seriously when he's spoken about his death. And perhaps she was thinking, I don't know what's going uh, what's to happen I might not get another chance to do this uh, before Jesus is killed. And perhaps she was thinking, I would rather let Jesus know right now of my love for him and all that he's done for me while he is alive. I will pour out this perfume upon him now. And so we see that her belief in Jesus' death and that he was going to die, she believed that in some way. And there's this extravagant outpouring of love and devotion that she pours out upon Jesus. So she, she, she understands that and she wants to show her great love to Jesus. The, the, the other thing I'd like you to notice is that she doesn't really care what other people think. Isn't that amazing? She doesn't really care what others think of her. She probably knew that she was inviting criticism because it was such an extravagant act. I mean, if you think about it in today's money, if you were to spend all of your money on a jar of perfume that would... Um, uh, all of your wages, I don't know what you earn, 30,000 pounds, 40,000 pounds, whatever it is, 20,000 pounds. If you were to take all of your wages for one year and buy a bottle of perfume and then pour that 
out over someone to say that you love them. That would, that would be an incredibly extravagant thing. And she knew she was going to take criticism, but she didn't care. She knew it was worth it because she was expressing what Jesus had done for her. And so her view of the cross, her, her understanding of Jesus and what he'd been called to do, elicited love, drew love in the most extravagant way out of her heart, and she poured it out in worship before Jesus. That's the second little cameo, the second little view of the cross. And then thirdly, we see how Jesus, um, Judas viewed the cross, and what it brought about for Judas was betrayal. And it's ironic to me that on the same day that Mary shows this extravagant act of love and devotion and worship, Jesus goes out and betrays the very same person that Mary is pouring out her love upon. You see, Jesus, Jesus, sorry, Judas was the original pretender. He was the original great pretender. Jesus, um, Judas was a man that claimed to be a disciple and pretended to be a disciple of Jesus. But he was never a true believer. Why do I say that? Because John 13, 10, Jesus says this of Judas himself. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He is completely clean. And you are all clean, speaking of his disciples, but not every one of you. And then it says, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. It's a very powerful thing that Jesus knew all the um, time throughout his ministry that he was going to be betrayed by Judas. So Judas wasn't like a backslider, you know, someone who was a Christian and then overcome by some sin. No, he was a pretender. He never was an authentic believer. He mixed with the disciples. He claimed to be one of them, but he truly didn't have faith. He didn't have saving faith. And as I was reflecting on that this week, you know, it's, it's still unfortunately true in the church today. There will always be people in the church that are like Judas. I'm not saying we go around accusing people of being Judases. I'm not saying that at all. But there are always people in the greater church that find it convenient to believe what Christians believe. And they even join in with the work of God. But they don't believe. They don't truly believe. They don't truly believe by faith. And in fact, Matthew chapter 7 um, puts it like this in verse 22. It says some of those people might even be used by God, but Jesus doesn't know them. And it says it says it's like this. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will say to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So ultimately, Jesus had to live with this knowledge. And as he ministered, knowing that one close to him ultimately would betray him. And he had always shown Judas the same love, the same affection as he had done for all of the others in his uh, band of, of friends. But Judas had never come to that place of repentance, acknowledging Christ for who he was. And the question that Mark's gospel asks, who is Jesus? Judas had never come to the place of, of acknowledging Christ as Lord and Savior and King.
So I suppose we should ask then, well, well, why did Judas decide to become a disciple in the first place? Well, I don't know, but perhaps he thought that Jesus' kingdom, like others, he thought that Jesus' kingdom was going to be a kingdom of power, a political kingdom, and he wanted to kind of ensure a place of privilege for himself in that kingdom. Uh, Perhaps when Jesus made it clear that he was walking towards his own death on the cross, that Judas at the last moment said, no, I'm on the wrong side here. I want to get out of this. I can't identify with this. And he, he made a plan and betrayed Jesus. Perhaps... Perhaps it was the extravagant love and worship of Mary that was the turning point for Jesus, uh, for Judas, that reflected the hypocrisy of his own position and his own pretended love for Christ. Perhaps that was the last straw, and that was what broke the camel's back. And in that moment, he realized that he was not who he said he was, and in disgust, he decided to change sides and to betray Jesus. But whatever the reason was, and we can't ever fully know, Judas regarded the cross, thought of the cross, as foolishness. And that made me think of what Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 21. And he says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach, the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe... For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And I wanted to really kind of land there this morning and just say this to you, that really not much has changed because in our kind of culture, there are many that still, like Judas, see the cross as absolute foolishness. And Paul says that in his own culture, that, um, you know, for the Greeks, they loved wisdom, they loved philosophy, they loved understanding with their heads. And for them, the way of salvation could not possibly be through a cross. That was absolute foolishness. How could that ever be? And in our culture, so many still today, wise in their own eyes, wanting, you know, our secular humanist culture thinks that we can, through understanding and intellect and technology and medicine, we can solve all of our own own problems. And in that kind of culture, the cross is absolute foolishness. How could it ever, the death of a man on a cross, ever save us? Our culture says the same thing. And yet, in God's wisdom, in God's economy, Jesus was the Passover lamb. And the sins of the human race were taken upon his son that all might be saved. So my my challenge, I guess, as I finish this morning, is I trust that we would be more like Mary, who really sees the true but, uh, the, the truth of the cross and what the cross bought for us all. And that would elicit love out of our hearts. That would elicit absolute devotion and an outpouring of love and gratitude to what Jesus has done for all of us. And I, I love how Paul finishes that um, verse in 1 Corinthians. He says, but to those who are called, every one of us that is called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
And I trust for you, as we look forward to um, anticipating Easter, that Jesus would more and more in your life show his power, the power of God, and that you might know the wisdom of God. Now, perhaps you've been watching this this morning. Uh, I know many of you that watch our broadcast are members of this church. But perhaps there's someone out there this morning that's watching this that has never thought of Christ as the Passover lamb, who's never fully understood that Jesus has taken your sin upon himself when he died upon the cross. Perhaps you've thought of that as absolute foolishness. How could that ever be something that can transform your life? Well, the Bible says that it's, it's quite easy to know God. It's, it's easy to come to a place, what the Bible calls salvation, that we are saved. And what that means is simply that we can start to have a relationship with God. And the Bible says it's quite easy. All we have to do is believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And as we believe in our hearts and we confess that with our mouths, a transaction happens instantly inside of us, and what was dead inside of us comes alive, and we are able to have relationship with God our Father. What separated us from relationship with God our Father is removed, sin is removed, and we now are able to have relationship with Him. And if that's you this morning, I'd love to just pray with you right now. It's easy. Salvation is easy. You believe in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is. And in that moment, God comes and makes his home in your heart. And you begin to enjoy a relationship with him as father. And you begin to walk with him. And he begins to transform your life. And you get to know him as a father and a friend. And that's what Christian faith is. It's not religion in the sense of following rules. It's a relationship with a person who speaks to you and helps you and transforms you from the inside out. So if that is you this morning, I'd love to pray with you. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And then I'd love to hear from you. Please, please um, let us know uh, that we can encourage you and we can follow up and show you a little bit more of, of what God has for your life. And if you'd like to respond, you can, you can respond. Uh, there's an email address that will come up afterwards. Ask anything at forestownchurch.org. If you've prayed this prayer this morning, you can let us know, and I'd love to write to you and connect with you myself. So let's pray together. And if you'd like to pray after me, I'll lead you in a prayer right now. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for what he did for me on the cross. I thank you, Lord, that he took my sin upon himself. That he was the Passover lamb. That when he died, all my sin was taken upon him. And that it's been washed away by the blood of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would come right now. I confess my sin. I ask that you dwell in my heart right now. And I believe by faith that you are who you say you are. That what you did was make relationship with God possible for me. And I simply embrace that now and ask that you would come 
that you dwell in my heart through faith and transform me that I might become more and more like your son. I pray that your Holy Spirit would rest upon me right now, that I would know your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.